Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Creating Structure podcast. It is great to have you. I am John Wheaton, your host. I am privileged to have someone I regard as a friend and somebody with insights in the industry, a leader in his business, Derek Losey, Executive Vice President of Steel Encounters. Derek, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. I appreciate the opportunity. It's great. Thanks so much for being willing. A shout out to some of my guests that I know have been waiting for this uh, next um, podcast. And also just a, a shout out to some folks who are always liking the announcements on Instagram. Christopher Casto, who used to work for us. Matt Verderamo, hi to you. Hello to my wife, to Josh, my audio technician, producer extraordinaire, and others. It's great to be back. So, uh, Derek, the last time we saw each other face to face in three dimensions was March of 2020 during the Tornadic BEC convention in Nashville. Do you remember? Oh, yes. I remember running to the base. No, not running, walking to the base. <laughs> yes, I remember. In that disoriented haze at 1.30 in the morning hearing, attention, please evacuate your room, <laughs> or whatever that note was. Yeah, I, I was not really willing, but my wife dragged me down the stairs. Oh, that's so funny. You're like, yeah, it's a good cladding system. We don't have a problem. Exactly, fine. Yeah, in fact, Rob Anderson, I don't know if he's listening, Rob Anderson from Anderson Aluminum in Columbus, he and I had been trying to get together. And we finally did at two in the morning in the masonry enclosed interior room. He's like, John, it's Rob. I'm like, oh, client meeting, two in the morning. <laughs> Perfect. Don't so, waste any time, John. Yeah, thank you. So, Derek, um, tell everybody what you, who you are, what you do, where you're from, and let's get, let's get rolling. Okay. Uh, so, John already introduced me. as uh, My name is Derek Losey. I work at Steel Encounters in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I'm also from Salt Lake City. So I've uh, been here most of my life, uh, spent a few days, years away, but not too many. And currently I reside near Park City. So I drive into Salt Lake every day. Um, I started here uh, in 1985, or excuse me, I started in the business in 1985, but I started at Steel Encounters in 2005. Okay. So. Uh, prior to that, I worked in uh, small family business, full service glass. We did everything from small commercial to shower enclosures and uh, auto glass. So I even did auto glass for many years. So mm. um, I, I went from that business, made a lot of friends and, and acquaintances in the industry. And six or seven years later, after I was in the family business, I, I left and started a rep firm became a uh, independent manufacturer's rep for about another dozen years until uh, one day, one of my clients, Steel Encounters, uh, every time I walked through the door for about 10 years, the, uh, the president then was Ira Field. Uh, he offered me a job just about every time I came into the, into the building. <laughs> it <laughs> sounds like Ira to me. Yeah. Yeah. And you can imagine it, right? And, and yeah. so uh, it was pretty relentless. And finally, after about 10 years, I, I finally agreed when he told me he wasn't going to be here forever. So oh, that's in a, I could just, <laughs> I could just hear him. Hey, Derek, you ought to come work for us, man. You know? Yeah. So I'm not going to be here forever, you know? And I said, Oh, now we can talk. So, Interesting. So yeah. So I started here uh, in, in 2005. It was 
probably, you know, the best move I ever made. It's a great company. I know, John, you've been here several times, met a lot of our people. Uh, we really have a, a super company and, and, and it's really based on the founders and, and how they started this company back in 1985. It, was Ira one of the founders? He was not. Ira came in, I think it was about 93 or 94. Uh, Steel Encounters was actually a client of mine before Ira was here. Mm-hmm. And then, and then I had uh, the many years with with him here. Who 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 started the business there? The business was originally started as a steel joist and deck company. Okay. And Dennis Peterson and Billy Moore were the two original founders. And then shortly after, they brought in Fred Tannenbaum, uh, who became the the CEO and really the man who who put the business strategy together with them. Uh, Dennis and Billy were sharp guys, um, engineers, and, and they knew their business. Uh, but but uh, Fred Tannenbaum really put structure to it. But before you talk to us about your uh, educational path and stuff, let, let's just take a quick bookmark. Some people that don't know Steel Encounters may be saying, wait a minute, John, where are we talking about a company that does steel and bar joists and decking? But we're not. At some point, they started an architectural division. Do you know what the etymology was there? When did they do that? Sure, sure. I, I believe it was around 1987. Okay. Uh, and you may remember Dan Painter. I do. Dan Painter uh, came over from a company called Associated Specialties, which many of our original employees here came from Associated Specialties, a company that was in business for three generations and uh, really wound down in the late 80s. And a lot of those people came to Steel Encounters uh, in that wind down. And Dan was one of them. And Dan walked in and knew Fred Tannenbaum because that's where he had come from and said, hey, I've got two projects downtown Salt Lake City, and I need a place to do them with. And really, they started the architectural division in really? that fashion. That was it. That organic. Yeah. You know, a lot of um, businesses have started that way. I know when PPG's commercial construction group closed down, Harmon inherited a number of branches because guys like Bob Anderson and Dave Stuffelbeam and others, they basically just said, Hey, we, I got a bunch of contracts to execute. I don't want to have to turn these over. You know, um, uh, CB Waldo in Tennessee became um, uh, Anderson, I think, metals down there, probably naming it wrong. Um, but yeah, that's an interesting. So Dan went to Fred and said, I got two contracts to execute. And that was it. It started. That was it. We started the architectural division and uh, hired estimators and uh, project managers and became a a glazing contractor as well. So we've grown into uh, quite a bit since then. That's fantastic. You went to University of Utah for a while? I did. I went to University of Utah, uh, uh, and then I got sucked into the family business, never finished college. Mm -hmm. So I am self-taught, mentor-taught, all the the great influencers I've had in my life, uh, teaching me about the business and Mm -hmm. and, uh, learning how how to do it from there. I love that story because we've had quite a few guests who, you know, went to college and it served its purpose for a year or two or three, or they didn't, they went straight to the family business. And I, you know, I think whether you're college trained or not, the the whole key is, am I, am I a self-educated person? Do I know how to learn how to learn? Right. That's the cult. That's it. Right. Right. So that's, that's a great story so far. So steel encounters, it, 
And just for audience sake, you still have a significant presence in the steel market, right? Yeah, we have a, a, a really large uh, steel joist and deck. Um, we're brokers and, and we handle the drawings, engineering of the uh, deck and joist. And we're probably uh, the largest customer Nucor has in that business. I see. And where are the offices located for the steel uh, section? Yes. So we have a, we have an office here in Salt Lake city, uh, an office uh, sales and, and detailing office in Seattle. And we have a detailing only office in uh, Arkansas, just North Northwest of little rock. Interesting. Yeah, and Arkansas is really growing too. I just saw a post from Mark Zweig, who was on this podcast, and he said, this is what $600,000 buys you in Bentonville, Arkansas these days. And it was like a little ranch house with a yard that needed mode. <laughs> like, you got to be kidding me. Yeah, that's, so, that's good. And Steel Encounters is a employee-owned company, right? Yeah, we're an ESOP company. We're uh, nearly 80% employee-owned. And uh, it's been a really successful model for us. We still have a little over 20% of the company owned by certain individuals, mm-hmm. um, mostly our, our leadership here. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so it's been something that we call skin in the game for, for the leaders to have some ownership in, in the business and, and something at risk to keep, to keep interested and motivated. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so, okay, so let's, Let's focus a little on the architectural. Well, let's focus almost entirely on the architectural division. <laughs> you've given us, you know, you're, you're from Salt Lake City. You've given us some background. Um, I want to circle back just on your history and how you got to this space and context, because it's always fascinating to me. So you started with a small family business in 1985. And, and are you saying that was owned within your family or by another yeah, family? It was, uh, my stepfather's business. Yeah. Gotcha. And and did you do estimate? What did you do there? Everything? Uh, everything. Putty, you know, I started out sweeping the floor, of course, like you normally would. And uh, yeah, that I remember my my duty was to fill in on Saturdays. We were open half a day. And so everything that came in on Saturdays, I dealt with. And somebody needed, you'd come out and do a putty hack out. You went out and did a putty hack out or they needed a mirror cut or a, a screen rescreened. That's, that's what you did. So eventually... I did start doing the estimating and uh, uh, ran the ran it as a general manager towards the end. So you ran uh, that div- that business as the general manager. Yeah, and uh, families have family issues, so it was time for me to move on, and and that's when I became a, a, you know formed a, a manufacturer rep business. That's fantastic. So you quickly went into you know your own business or representing yourself. What was the name of the rep firm? And talk to us about that. Sure. It was called Reflective Product Sales. It was more than a mouthful, uh, kind of like Steel Encounters. It was kind of a mouthful as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, I believe I believe the first company that I, I repped was Custom Windows out of Denver. And we had a relationship with them and had done several projects with them. And, and I talked them into letting me rep their company in Utah and Idaho. And developed into to several companies over the years. Most of them had been bought out or run out of business by now, but it's been, uh, you know, a bit of a turnover, you know, old companies that you remember like Samaka was, was one that we repped and 
they were swallowed up by C.R. Lawrence at uh, some point in the early 2000s. Uh, but still have a lot of those relationships. You know, W&W Glass with the Habers. Um, I repped those guys from 1996, and we still have a very valued relationship with them. It still encounters here. So um, that's been a, a good, long relationship with, with those guys. And there's, you know, when, I, yeah, so- when I came to Steel Encounters, they, you know, they said, Sure, they're the only guys that buy from us in Utah anyway. Why don't we just keep the relationship? So, I love it. So, uh, so then you just channeled that through Steel Encounters. Yes, yes. So. Those those guys are prolific. You know, Jeff Jeff Haber was on one of the early podcasts, and yeah, I really have a lot of respect for them. I mean they they are connected nationally and in New York City, right? So, yeah. um, WW. So this was Reflective Product Sales. Uh, forget the question. Uh, you probably had interacted with different rep firms, but how much did you know about a manufacturer's rep firm before starting it? Just a little bit. I knew that my father-in-law did the same thing in the plumbing business. And then, <laughs> that's how much I knew. And that was and, your prep. And I knew he was about to die the second I said I wanted to do it, right? So, <laughs> yeah, everybody that... Every, Anytime you want to follow in somebody's footsteps and get into that business, they're like, no, don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, and, and I think we've all, all witnessed a lot of uh, sales rep firms come and go. It's, it's, it's a difficult business. The, the cash flow is extremely slow. Uh, it takes a lot to get into it. And, and so there's a high failure rate. So, yeah, my father-in-law was not real excited to see that happening, but, uh, but it was successful. And, you know, and I ran it for almost 13 years before Ira, Ira talked me out of it. Yeah. Well, I, I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause I wanted to go there. I mean, you're a, I don't know how to describe, I, I've seen you in action. You know, I see you as a steadfast, patient, diligent guy who just continues onward to whatever the point of conclusion is, whether it's a sale or otherwise. And I'm assuming you did that at reflective to, to go from nothing to 13 years is quite an accomplishment. Um, it, it, what was that trajectory like? Did it, was it always tough? Did it get easier at some points? I mean, what, how, how did it resonate with you? Well, I, I, I think a lot of that became quickly for me. Of course, when you, when you first start out and, and, it, and it's fun because we just had a new sales guy come in here for Old Castle this morning brand new guy. Right. And, and, he's, and the, the previous guy's with him and he says, they won't even remember your name till you've been here six times. Right. <laughs> and so, and there's a lot of truth to that. Right. And so, uh, so really the, the important thing was becoming a resource for people. I, I didn't want to go in and just sell people things. Right. I wanted to be their resource for things. And after a few years, it, that really did become the, the operational style of my business is that, we were a resource. Even if we didn't sell things, people would call me and looking for, for some help to find it. And, and I regularly went to all of the glass shows and, and conferences and, and just found people and knew people and made contacts. And, and, and if nothing else, I could connect people together. And, and so that I built a lot of trust and eventually uh, came into stronger lines with FCO and and others that allowed me to really be engaged in in the glass business and so uh we repped fco from 1995 to 2005 when i came here and and that yeah that 
it's, it's a lot of work and people who are willing to put the work in do, do quite well with that type of product lineup. And, and so we did real well with it and yeah, it did, it did get better, got easier. And sure. The first, the first two or three years though, I was a handyman, a sales rep, uh, uh, auto glass contract installer and, you know, just anything to make ends meet. I'll bet you were. Did you wind up with any staff, any 1099 or direct employees, or did you just run the whole thing yourself? No, I, we, I had uh, two other employees most okay. of the time, you know, after, after about the first four years, I, then I always had one to two employees. And did you rep just in the greater Salt Lake area or was it all mountain area or what, what was your territory? Oh. There was some varied territories. We, you know, one of, I uh, had a, a bunch of lines with, that were repping into the window manufacturing industry. So that extended out into Colorado and down into Las Vegas and mm-hmm. Phoenix. Uh, so handled a lot of the West Didn't didn't go into California, but sort of that, that vertical North South between Canada and Mexico mm-hmm. uh, along the Rocky mountains there, really. That's a good vertical and a, an area that probably really needed your services. I don't, before we move on, I don't want to ignore or overlook a key statement you made that you really weren't selling people stuff. You, you became a resource. And that to me says value selling. You, you really weren't selling. You were being a resource and providing value into the supply chain. Just want to talk about your approach at all a little bit there. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a, really integral part of my person as well as what I joined here at Steel Encounters. And we have the same alignment with that. Anybody can go out and try to pitch or sell or 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 or, or push something on to someone. But if you don't believe it and you don't believe that you know how to help somebody get it into what what is useful for them, mm-hmm. then then you're you're a one-time Charlie. And what you want to do is is be able to help them integrate it or not. And and I, you know w- one of my best stories with all my people when when we had W&W Glass and Fco and uh, Grandview Glass were were all in the similar business, and it was great because you'd always get the person who wanted the Pilkington planar wall in their building. Everybody wanted it, right? And and it was nice because if they were serious, you could really help them. If they weren't, you could help them down the line to to other systems within the FCO or the Grandview re- region. And and um, and if we couldn't help them at all, you know, I I'd, I'd send them somewhere else. So, uh, you know, just just being honest with them and giving them that the, the real feedback that they needed to get their job done was was what I think helped helped keep that business going. And and I also think it helps keep steel encounters going. We get. We really do get a lot of first calls from architects and owners when they're trying to solve a window problem. That's really good. I want to move into steel encounters and your role there. But again, on that that point, I liked your point that if we couldn't help them, we'd hand them off to somebody. And I, I think that that speaks to my mentality as well, that we can always provide a solution to the customer even if we have to walk away or even if we don't have a solution, you know, and it's probably not even a competitor always, but even sometimes if it's somebody who's a competitor, now they, you make your competitor, your advocate, your ally by handing off that customer to them, like, Hey, they're going to better serve you. I, or I don't have time for it, or it's too expensive for you. So that's a really great point, Derek. 
No, I, I can tell you, I, I, I caught a lot of crap uh, from Ira when I was here over the first few years. And I would help people through problems that I, that we couldn't solve at steel encounters. And, <laughs> and, uh, and, but it, but it always pays off, right? You always get them coming back and, and they value your honesty. And, and, you know, when they've got something that's coming up your alley, they're going to, they're going to back you and they're going to push for you to be on that project. Yeah. Thanks. So let's, let's, uh, segue now, since we're talking steel encounters, um, yeah, there's a number of people there I have a lot of respect for, but two two people in this industry that I just have a great amount of respect for are you and Tom Jackson. Um, and I, I worked with Ira early on or spoke to him as well, and he's a super smart guy, man. Um, so there's some great folks there. So when you entered Steel Encounters, when Ira hired you away and you rolled your rep firm into there or closed that, what was your role? What did you do first? My, my original role was product sales and steel encounters had what, what we coined as a drep, a dealer rep and other products like Centria uh, metal panels. Uh, we were the only local dealer for Centria. So it, it, it paid for us to go and help the architect design in, uh, work directly with developers, architects, contractors, and, and get product in. So that was my original role here. And eventually uh, learned enough to get us in real big trouble and do some budgeting on work and, and work with the estimating team to develop large project work. Yeah, good. And oh, what was my question? Um, so product sales. So... Were you guys installing at the time or no? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it was not, you know, we, we did sort of turnkey all the way from helping design to, you know, punch list. Gotcha. Okay, good. So you entered there and was Tom with the organization when you started? Tom was, which was a surprise to me, right? Because when I came here, I thought I was going to be the boss in two years. And, uh, and so <laughs> then I met Tom. <laughs> and, I love and, it. Uh, which, which was, I mean, we, which was great. And, and Tom was, Tom was directing all over all the construction over the shop fab and, and the uh, field crews. And that's, that was his function when I first started here. And uh, of course you, you, you know, Tom and, and he did a fantastic job at that. Um, probably better than anybody I've ever met at, at doing that work. And so he, his trajectory was pretty vertical as well. Yeah. We're referring to Tom Jackson. Um, he's now the president of Steel Encounters, right? Correct. He's president and CEO. Yeah, president and CEO. But he was you—you you, you, uh, succeeded him as head of the architectural division. But this is a new role, right? Executive VP is a new role in Correct. Steel Encounters, and I assume there's an executive VP over the steel side of the business as well. Exactly. Okay, good. And uh, yeah, Tom's Tom's quite a guy. Um, so. How did you ascend? I mean, you, you kind of alluded to it. So you just basically started there and gradually assumed, learned, took on more responsibility and moved in. What was what were the roles that you ascended into? So uh, business development. So it went from really product sales to, to business development for, for the architectural division. Mm-hmm. And it still was primarily in, in the architectural firm and in but promoting 
our company more than just our products and became sales manager, which encompassed estimating at that point. I so see. I operated a sales manager for, for several years here. Uh, then I think we created another new sort of title, you know, vice president of sales and really headed up the entire front end of the business. Of the architectural business. Correct. Uh, I remember my question now, forgive me, everybody. Um, <laughs> bookmark there for a second. Did you find, um, did you find when you started and do you still find any synergy on the front end? You talked about helping architects. Did you find natural lead-ins from the steel piece to the architectural piece? Um, did one come before the other or are they completely separate? You know, it's interesting because you would think that there would be some link, but we can't, we still haven't figured out how to link the two uh, sides together. Uh, our clientele is very different. Hmm. And a lot of their work is, is uh, direct contractor, drop ship. You know, they buy the steel direct, hire an erector. Smaller project style or different project style. Our, our project style typically has a full fabricator, you know, wide flange beam style work, vertical. Uh, so yeah, we, we don't have a lot of overlap. We we're rarely on the same jobs. Uh, we, we did just get a contract uh, recently that had both scopes in it. That's very interesting. Thanks for explaining that. So I, and I, when I met you, I think you were in charge of business development and then became VP of sales. And um, so let's talk about steel encounters architectural division, just for a little bit then as we kind of get into other topics so I've seen some evolution there, and it's been a while since I visited. But um, talk to, talk to us about your how the company is integrated. I think you have a full service shop, you have field, you have engineering. So can you talk to us just about kind of the the integration of you know vertically, horizontally, however we want to talk about it? <laughs> yeah, I, I think like like a lot of people in our business, we have a full sales staff and our, our sales staff actually stays involved pretty long. We have uh, more estimators probably per dollar than most of the competitors that I know, but our, our estimators stay involved pretty long and, and really uh, work through the entire project. Even when it gets into project management, still they're, they're involved. Um, we have, a pro then we go into project management um, with his, where, you know, I think some of the things that you sent over to me, John, that I was looking at um, with our project management group is, is I think, one of the places that we shine uh, in here and, and because it means that we've got a lot of complicated or large work. Uh, we do have an engineering department that does most of our detailing, drafting, uh, shop drawings internally, and we, we do sometimes work out with subcontractors. We do all of our engineering out of house uh, as far as structural engineering goes, but we do have a, a fabrication shop and a fabrication shop. We bring in uh, a mix of things. So we do develop some of our own window wall, curtain wall systems, as well as working with the traditional vendors like Conair, Old Castle, uh, Tube Light, Wausau. We do some work with them as well, but we do primarily fab and assemble everything we can in our shop. We, we don't do field fabrication. 
uh, unless it's an emergency. So everything comes in. We try to get as much done in the shop as possible, putting in all of the, the wet sealants and end dams. Is, is that, are, are you primarily unitizing or are you doing stick and unitizing and pre-building frames as much as you can? Yes, we're doing both. And in, in, we're still in, you know, square footage wise in our, in our town, it's still a, a stick market. Um, mm-hmm. We're just really uh, on the verge of, of getting into more unitized work. We've done quite a bit here. We've probably done most of the unitized work in our, in our area, but the market itself lends itself to stick. We're getting a little bit taller, a little more sophisticated and, and things are developing, but uh, we do both in our shop right now. We, we actually treat it as two separate lines where we'll build and assemble stick systems and, and send them out one end of the building or we'll, we'll turn the corner and bring it down and do unitized. So when you're doing stick systems, um, are you trying to build, like if it's a continuous wall, are you trying to build like every other frame, you know, string the gaskets in, put the end seals in, you know, as much as you possibly can do, glaze every other light. I mean, that, that's the kind of stuff you're doing. Exactly. Yes. Whenever we, as much as we can do. So yeah, if it's every other bay or if we can do screw spline systems and, and snap them together in a field, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we'll do as much as we can. Are you guys union or non-union? <clears throat> so our primary location in Salt Lake City is, is a non-union location. Okay. We do have uh, signatories in other geographic regions. So, uh, Northwest and, uh, the Pacific islands. Gotcha. Are you still working in the Pacific islands? We haven't, uh, for about a year and a half. So I see it's been, it's been a while. We we're not, not looking in there, but, uh, we're, we're plenty busy where we're at. Yeah. Well, you and I know the job we were involved with that Walgreens flagship. That was a tough yeah. one. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's abandoned now. Is it really? Yeah. It's been abandoned for about a year as a Why? beautiful building and it's turned into a homeless encampment. Is so, that right? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, interesting. <clears throat> well, that's a whole other story. We won't go down that path. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> <laughs> Good looking building. Best homeless encampment in the islands. I'm sure. Yes. It's one of the nicest. Wow. That's interesting. So um, and are you guys members of NACC? Are you NACC certified? We are not. Okay. We're not members of NACC. The only reason I asked is I think I recently saw a post on LinkedIn where you, you're a member of a peer group, at least with Nataline and Tom Nesbitt and Jim Sethopoulos and others. So I didn't know if you guys were in NACC or not. No, we're, we're actually, they've been out and you know we, we've talked to them, but uh, currently we're not. Gotcha. Okay. Let's talk more. So you mentioned project management. Um, so do you feel you guys are differentiated as in like the project management realm? Like wh- what, what made you emphasize that? Is that a particular strength you believe you bring to the table? Yeah, for, for our, our area and you know, our area it's, it's, it is growing, uh, but it's been an interesting market in, in that, <clears throat> you know, there's not a lot of larger companies in, in Salt Lake city that can do, some of the bigger work and, and it's sporadic. So, you know, we understand that. So we, we usually end out with projects that are either large or really complicated that demand significant project management. And, and that's, what's the differentiator. So, you know, when, when it becomes a complicated or, or large project, I, I think that, you know, there's a lot more fun things for other people to do. 
than, than try to enter into that market. <laughs> Derek, um, so everybody, re- like you're accountable for the P&L and the architectural division, correct? Correct. So do you have a director of project management or how do you run it? Do you have like a lead in each of those realms you discussed that report to you or? Yes. Okay. Yeah, we do. We have, so, so we have, uh, I believe seven senior managers that mm. operate different parts of the business, uh, of the architectural business, uh, including marketing. So marketing falls under me for really for the whole company. But, um, yeah, we have uh, a special projects group that does oddballs. They, they do all of our service work, all of our replacements and, They'll do custom homes and, and some really custom type work. Really? Yeah. And, and then we, and so we have a manager over that, Chad Gallagher. We have uh, a manager over our, uh, what I call our construction manager who, who works over engineering project management, uh, Frank Lasusa. And then he also has a couple of senior guys that, that lead down from there um, that handle the fabrication plant the project managers and the engineering team. I see. And then we have our, our pre pre-construction manager, Ben Hyatt over all the estimating um, and pre-construction design. And our, um, then we have our field manager, Shane May. Got you. Okay. That's, that's really helpful. Do you like that? Um, How does that work for you from a, like, was that structure in place when you started or were you given the right and responsibility to structure that however you wanted to? It's been restructured in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. We, we've had similar structure to this, but it's but I did restructure it and basically uh, put it as sort of a pre-construction side and a construction side of the business and some flow down from there. That makes sense. Okay. Thanks for that. So let's talk... Um, are you seeing anything new and innovative uh, or are you seeing something now either from an engineering requirement or a product request or an architectural feature that is starting to be more systemic? Um, something kind of new that you didn't see three years ago or five years ago. Is there anything that comes to mind or if not, we'll move on to another question. I don't, I don't think so. I think, you know, the current design trend that I see a lot in the mid rise, mid high rise uh, buildings, we're seeing a lot of of texture. And, and so trying to create that texture either within our unitized system or abutting our unitized system. uh, We're still in this, this strange market where we end out with GFRC or concrete elements that we have to abut to that we're not getting into our unitized walls from a cost standpoint. And so that's been a little challenging, I think design wise and dealing with uh, large GFRC panels next to our, our, our unitized walls and having, having the engineering challenges of, of the differential movements and support structures. And you're, uh, maybe I missed it. Are you saying that's in your package and you have to coordinate it or it's in somebody else's trade? We would like it in our package, but it usually comes out from a cost standpoint. I see. So you would do a total enclosure if you could with the different textures, phenolic yeah. panels, GFRC, UHPC. How about metal panels? Do you guys do metal panels? We do. We do a, quite a, a fair amount of metal panel work. 
Do you so. find do you find that when you're doing the glazing, the glazed aluminum curtain wall, whether the panels are glazed in or next to, do you find it more natural that that's included in your scope then? Yeah, I think project, depending on the project, we rarely do a project where we're not doing both uh, if we're doing metal panel. If we're doing curtain wall, we can do curtain wall and not metal panel quite often, but but we're rarely doing metal panel without the curtain wall. Rarely doing metal panel without the curtain wall, you're saying. Yeah. Right. I think there's a couple of metal panel competitors there even close yeah. by. So, um, and they probably distribute also outside of Salt Lake City. Um, what's the growth been like in Utah overall? Is Salt Lake City on a growth path? Is, is Provo, is like Ogden, like what's, is it stable? I mean, what's that look like these days? Uh, so, so our, what we call our Wasatch Front region here runs essentially from Brigham City, which is about uh, 50 miles, 55 miles north of Salt Lake City, clear down to just south of Provo, which is another you know, 45 miles that, that direction. So it's about a hundred mile corridor. And the, the growth has been pretty significant. Really? There's, been, there's been a lot of draw from out of state. But it's also, as you know, Utah grows a lot from within. Mm-hmm. And we, we have one of the, the largest uh, birth rates in the country. So a lot of people stick around and, and we do have a lot of internal growth. So it's been a pretty significant growth. Um, and we've seen it in the real estate market cost things going up like everywhere else has. Mm-hmm. And uh, we see lots of the mid-rise buildings for the, from the construction standpoint coming up. I see. And we're just starting to see maybe some more sophisticated construction. So the mid-rise, would you characterize those as, you know, four to 10 story kind of buildings? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lots of med- that. Medical office buildings, uh, commercial office buildings, et cetera. Yeah. Lots of, lots of tech, actually. A lot of people don't, don't realize that there's mm-hmm. a, a bunch of tech going on down just a few miles south of Salt Lake City. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned, you, you mentioned Wasatch. So am I correct? I, it's been a while, but that, that mountain range is right up against Salt Lake city, right? So you're saying it's that correct. corridor just, it is just to the West of the Wasatch mountains, North to South. Correct. Yes. Yeah. I, I got to tell the audience, if you've never been to Salt Lake city, goodness, you're really missing something spectacular. First, just, just flying in and landing and looking at great Salt Lake, but one of the things I like about just, I digress for a second. I love Seattle and I love Salt Lake city, but in Seattle, if I want to get to the Olympic peninsula, I got to, you know, get to a ferry or get around onto a bridge. It t- takes a little bit. If I want to get into the Cascades, you know, it takes 45 minutes or an hour. The thing that amazed me about Salt Lake is the mountains are right on the city. Like, you know, I, I was up the Canyon road in 15 minutes. I mean, it was just like, everything is just right there. The mountains are right on top of you. It was really cool. Yeah. It's, it's 25 minutes now just because <laughs> there's right, right, right. <laughs> right. I, I think my wife and I, and my daughter, when I came to do that training quite a few years ago, now we, we went up to Alta um, ski area, but there were hiking paths. This was June. And I think I forget what the name, little Canyon road or big, but I mean, it just was very quick access. And, uh, I remember looking out over that plain that you described south from the top of that mountain and just spectacular. 
Yeah, it's it's amazing. And, and you're right. I mean, it, that that that's probably one of the more impressive canyons too that you went up into that little little Cottonwood Canyon. Little Cottonwood Canyon. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah that's great. So Salt Lake City in that whole corridor, you said it's about a hundred miles north to south, is is growing. Um, now this may be a controversial question because it is Utah, but I remember um, I have a my wife's niece cousin lived there at the time and they were getting married. So we went to a brewery, but they wouldn't mm-hmm. serve the beer. We had to buy the beer and take it somewhere else. But also there was a lot of micro brews, but there were certain rules. Are there still a lot of micro brews cropping up in town? A lot of cool eatery places or no? Yeah. Yeah, there are, there actually are. And, and uh, you know, we're getting a little more Cosmo here. We still have funny, strange liquor laws, but once you know to navigate them, it's not really that complicated. No, everybody has different liquor laws. Um, I like that you have to have food in front of you if you have a beer, no matter what. So yeah, that's cool. So we talked a little bit about innovation. You said nothing spectacular. You mentioned architects early on though. Do you guys spend a lot of time or much time? I mean, or is that the bulk of your time on the front end? Are you getting leads very early because the architect community trusts you? Do you work with architects regularly? Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. I We do. And and I would say, uh, you know, probably like you've had in other interviews that COVID really chucked a wrench into a lot of this stuff. And, and it's really changed some of our habits and, and the way that we work. Mm-hmm. And Prior to COVID, I would say we spent a tremendous amount of time in the architect's offices. Mm-hmm. It really, were, you know, we've got a full-time architectural sales rep. All he does is, is really spend time in the architect's office. And prior to COVID, it was a lot. Through COVID, it was very complicated. Uh, and it's sort of getting back to that a little bit now, getting a little more normal. But everything's changed. As you know, you probably have a lot more people working remote than you did before, John. And, yes. and, and so do we, and so do the architects. Many of the architects I know are still working from home mm-hmm. and it's, it's uh, a little difficult to get in front of them unless we're doing a, a, a zoom meeting, which only is so effective, but yeah, we, we try to spend the time there. We try to get early information, knowledge about work, uh, Usually if something comes in the door and we haven't been working on it for several months, we probably won't look at it. That makes sense. Cause then it's just more of a competitive price based thing. You can't really assess your options there. Right. Uh, let's run down this path for a minute then. Cause a lot of, I've, I've asked a lot of questions to different guests about COVID and that's interesting. Cause I know that, you know, I, I haven't been to Utah and I pretty much, there's no coincidence why the, the last time I saw you was March of 2020, because that's when everything started shutting down. Right. But I know that Utah was also heralded as one of the more, quote, free states. Um, but COVID has impacted them. I know architects probably are not always just within the city, but they're you know in and out of the state of Utah as well. So you said it's, it had a big change. It's still slow to change. To your point, we do have... I would, I would call our company now a hybrid organization. Um, most of my customers don't care anymore whether they come to my office or more. Of course, we're professional services, but um, yeah, that, they don't care what I wear. They don't care what my office looks like. They just care 
what I deliver results. And I find this more and more there's pros and cons. So talk about like how, how it has impacted you guys. You have people working remote. You said you have customers working remote. Has there been any migration back? Not just what's the general flavor there? Sure. We, we had a pretty significant remote staff Mm -hmm. for close to a year. Mm -hmm. Um, of course we had, you know, one of the real challenges is, is that we have shop fabricators and field installers who have to show up to work. So we, we went ahead and incentivized them to be there because they couldn't work from home. So, so for about the first six to eight months of the COVID outbreak, our field and, and shop staff received the incentive pay to, to be at work. And, um, that was a decision that we made early on and actually diverted some of our, what we would normally put into profit sharing into that sort of, I see. sort of fund. So we do have, you know, our business is very interactive, very collaborative. You know, we've got a lot of people involved in a project and it is a little more straining to do it virtually than, than in person. So most of our architectural staff is back in the office. We still okay. have a few people who, who do hybrid. We still have a few people who are fully remote. Um, but at, at a minimum, I think we're probably 95% in the office or hybrid in, in and out of the office. I um, see. So, but I, but I think what you mentioned a second ago, the challenges that our, uh, some of our clientele, especially the, the design community, are, are still remote. And, um, I, I have virtual meetings two, three times a week with architects and they're okay. at home. <laughs> that was going to be my question. Cause I yeah. have found actually, I, I'll, I'll say here, I don't know if it's good for us or not, Derek, but I've found it people much more agreeable to jumping into a virtual meeting for 45 minutes than trying to arrange a flight and visit them on site, you know, and, and, um, so there's pros and cons, but, um, what, what vehicles, what methods are you working through? Are you doing MS teams? Are you doing zoom? What, what is your virtual meeting platform? So actually just before COVID outbreak, probably three months, we had all of our conference rooms outfitted with as zoom rooms, which was wow really handy. Uh, it was just lucky timing. And so our, our primary platform when we're dealing with, uh, larger meetings is zoom. Mm -hmm. We do a lot of internal, like quick calls on, on teams, mm -hmm. but, uh, the, the larger meetings are, are on zoom typically, unless of course we're working with the developer of teams, which we are, and then we have teams meetings. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. I get, I get you. Um, did you guys find were, that's an amazing timing on the zoom room? Did, did you have to go through any new iterations from a technological infrastructure to really stay as productive as you could, or did you feel like you were pretty well equipped? I think, I think we were, we were right there. We were just, just good timing is really what it was all about. And it's interesting too. We have board meetings, uh, three to four times a year. And we've decided to this point, our board meetings are virtual and, and it's just easier. Um, we have a couple of board members who do international travel and 
we were always trying to schedule around their travels and and now it's they just have to stay up later or get up earlier so and, you have internal and external board members yes yeah you know i'm really glad you brought that up for the my sake and for the sake of our audience i found the same thing like we've we've gone to a new operating system here that i talked to tom about the entrepreneurial operating system and really it's predicated on a on a visionary integrator relationship like a ceo coo kind of thing so richard is the president and COO, and there's a point to this why I'm saying this. And then we have three directors, director of administration, director of building envelope engineering, director of building envelope consulting. We, we meet virtually, four, four of the five of us are in the same area, whether we're in the office or not. But I, I tell you, Derek, our board meetings are virtual now. We have three external. And actually, we're more effective in the EOS format with a spreadsheet up in the teams and filling stuff in as opposed to flipping through a bunch of papers. It's so there are areas to me that are more effective and efficient. As long as you already know the people, I find if we don't have a relationship, it makes it much harder. I I agree with you completely. You know, all of our executive meetings, all of our board meetings, those things are great. They go through quick and super effective Mm -hmm. on, on a virtual meeting platforms. Um, So, yeah, I agree. I, I agree with what you're saying. And so I think we've, we've benefited some out of this. Yeah. I I said a while ago, I don't know about you, but I I literally have not reviewed a, I have not reviewed and stamped or reviewed and marked up whether in pre-sale estimating or a proposal or a structural engineering calc or a set of shop drawings or whatever it is. I've not looked at a single paper product in almost two years. It's all electronic. I never thought I would say that it's more efficient to do in Bluebeam and write comments and get corrections. It's just, uh, it's kind of scary actually, because I prefer to be with people, but it's just quicker. It's more productive. Yeah. I think there are certain things. Yeah. So thanks for that conversation about COVID and remoteness. It's, it's all weird. At some point, Derek, I think um, I'm being silly here, but at some point I think we're going to return to like the eighties with, with suits and yellow ties and sh- and people showing up to their office and going out for lunches because it'll be so new to everybody, you know? Yes. I, I don't doubt it. <laughs> Forget the blue jeans. Let's get the suits out, you know? Um, so I, I never asked you this question and if it's like, if you don't want to answer it, it's fine. But you know, Simon Sinek talks about our why, our core purpose, like our reason for existing. D- does Steel Encounters have a why? Like, do you have a core purpose that is, you know, was established by the team there, a core focus? Like, talk to me about, like, if if there is one. I believe it's evolved over the years. And mm-hmm. becoming an ESOP, and really embracing the ESOP has changed our why to some degree. And a few years ago, probably two or three years ago now, uh, our executive team met and and we used to have this vision statement that was a hundred words. I don't know how many words long it was. It was so long that nobody knew it. Right. Too long. Right. Yeah. Me too. And so we said, well, we got to do something about this. And, and, And we really took it seriously and, and said, what is our why? What are we doing? What's our, what is our business about? 
And, and so I think our why just sort of drives back to what we've developed as our vision, which is building successful partners and employee owners. Mm. And, and in that, we want everybody who touches, comes in contact, works for, works with, works around steel encounters to be better off for it, right? You know, maybe, maybe it's our employees. We want them to be better financially, emotionally. We want them to have greater knowledge when they're working here at Steel Encounters. We want all of our vendors and, and other partners to be better off by working with Steel Encounters than not working with Steel Encounters. So building successful partners and employee owners was, was really what we came up with. And, and, and I believe we, we began to really achieve that. Thank you. That's really nicely stated. I wrote it down. Building successful partners and employee owners. Um, bookmark that, ladies and, and gentlemen. And I can say it without looking at it, right? So that's helpful as well. It is. You know, our new core uh, purpose is enabling facades that inspire, you know, five or six words. Mm-hmm. You know, before somebody would say, well, what does creating structure mean, John? And I'd do what I thought was a succinct elevator pitch and 25 seconds later, thank you very much. People are like, okay, next topic. So I agree with you. Like if it's a hundred words, it's, it's too much. So thanks for that. And I think you guys manifest that building successful partners and employee owners. Um, I like your, I like your comment that you want everybody to be better off, to feel better off in some way, emotionally, physically, financially, experientially, right. From having interacted with steel encounters. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and I got to tell you, it's, it's, it sounds easy and it says easy, but it, it's not always easy, right? Convincing all the people, A, that you're genuine about it uh, internally and externally, right? Uh, and how you handle conflict and, you know, you always have conflict, but how do you handle it? And when you're, when you're finished handling the conflict, does everybody feel like they got a fair deal? Did you find it? Um, hard work to change the mission statement vision, like to get to that point, like, was that a simple or difficult process? It was all day. It was all freaking day to come up with those six words. Yeah. I, us too. And Thomas, Thomas Cornelier talked about this. He's the president of CSI, TSI now, and, you know, he's second generation. And he said to me, John, some of the hardest work I've ever done, uh, I know Tom and I talked about just, you know, his leadership on the executive committee and, you know, recrafting job descriptions things. It's just, it's the hardest work we do. I think it's, it's tough. Same thing for us. I mean, we, we worked and worked and worked at it. Um, So that's good. Do you guys have any, is that it or do you, so that's your why, do you have like any defined core values or things that do? We, we do have, have the core values as well. So we have, we have a, a, a vision, a, a mission and, and value. And so, um, and I, and I just, so I don't miss something, I am going to look these up. Right. So, mm-hmm. so our mission is to serve our partners and each other with integrity, humility, and outstanding performance. Hmm. Okay. And our values are humble, hungry, respectful quality and honoring commitments. Nice. That's really good. Wow. Thanks for that. That's, that inspires me. Um, And I I think it's a good point uh, to the audience that a why is not the same as a mission statement, which is not the same 
as a set of core values. And I mean, we're just still pretty young into this too. We started this process back in September and then, you know, we really just picked our leadership team in November and then had our first, um, they call it a VTO vision traction meeting in January. But um, defining those has been important because now we can magnify and call people out like, Hey, you just, you just basically manifested or communicated four of our five core values to that customer. Or, Hey, I, I said something to one of my, to my director of building envelope engineering early in the week. I like, Hey, do you think we would bring this engineer back that, you know, left us a few years ago? He's like, John, he doesn't align at all with our core values. Well, like, well, it's good, really, yeah. good point. Good point. Cause I, in the past I would have just hired people shooting from the hip, you know, and if he doesn't yeah. align with the core values, there's just friction. I think we've said that several times about, about that same situation, John. And, and, uh, and when we look at the values and we say, you know, the first one that we list is humble and, and you know how often that, that gets missed up and, and, and it can be misinterpreted too, you know, mm-hmm. just because somebody's got a lot of pride and a lot of knowledge and, and, and they want to, you know, be straight with you about things doesn't necessarily mean they're not humble. Correct. Uh, right. And, and, there's other things that, that lead to that. And so, you know, we, we lose a lot of, a lot of people because of the first three that we say, which is, you know, humble, hungry, and respectful. And, and, uh, and so we have used that in doing exactly what you were just talking about in, in gee, does that, does that person really jive with all these things? Yeah, they could be a great person, you know, uh, you know, if your core values, uh, one of, one of uh, our consultants, he, he chokes him. He's like, you know, if you're like to you, if your core values were pride, lacks initiative and disrespectful, well, you know, if somebody wants to yell all the time, they'd be a great fit for us. Right. You know, my way or the highway. And there are organizations when maybe that's cool, but not for us. Right. Like you could have great skill, but if you're going to yell all the time, that's not going to work well for us. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's a great conversation. It, it's very inspiring. I think it's the hardest work we do. I really like your second one, hungry. So that's you know somebody who's got energy. They want to learn. They want to grow. They they initiate. I'm assuming they they're a take charge person. They're not waiting for somebody to give them direction. They're they're always seeking to to do the job. Sounds like right, right. All right, good. Thanks for diving deep on that topic. Got a little bit of time left. Um, let's talk about the market for a minute. Um, are you seeing any, any positive change? I know that, you know, Max published his fabricator blogs about this week, said the ABI was 58 last month. It was 51 the month before. Are you seeing any, any changes in any, any traction on new opportunities? Well, I, you know, we're super busy in, in pre-construction estimating, um, looking at, looking at work. Uh, some of it feels like they're just trying to get a temperature on what's going on with, with the pricing, mm. which of course is, is, uh, an ever-changing situation, but some of it may be genuine, um, I'm not sure where we're going to be with, with building interest rates by the time these guys finish up or what they're, what they're betting on. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, there has been some buzz for, for several years in our Salt Lake market. 
but it's the same buzz and, and we're, we're still buzzing around the same, you know, I see. handful of projects and few of them have kicked off, but there's still uh, several, several that have been holding back. So uh, we, we've been updating pricing and budgets on, on almost everything that we've looked at for the last three, four years though. So yeah. hopefully something gets some traction. Are you uh, like everybody else? Has the aluminum has gone up a lot? Are you still seeing aluminum very dynamic or in price escalation, or has it flattened out at that higher level? I think we're we're a little flatter right now. Um, we did see that that really you know we were starting to taper and even up and even off and taper down a little bit at the end of the year, uh, and then when. Uh, the Ukraine Russian conflict began, uh, we, we saw it spike up again. And yeah. so a lot of that's probably fear driven uh, about availability or, or, or commodity and, mm-hmm. and some of it's real. So we feel okay with where we're at, but we we've like many others, I, I hope and, and, and see, we've instituted very short quotation periods mm-hmm. of, validity now uh we're you know if somebody gets gets past the this expiration of time whether it be quote or schedule all bets are off and and we're we're reevaluating each project that makes sense so recently had a customer same thing he said you know john i expect to get this job it was postponed in may of 2020 and then it they're like, okay, let's go. Let's get back. You know, a $110 million job became a $130 million job. Like the real estate market, you know, owners were thinking, well, if I wait it out, maybe things will change. Yeah, they did. They changed for the worse. Right. And then, and the same thing he said, they have a deadline noon Friday afternoon. Like all my suppliers have held their prices to that point. And if it's like 1201, it's not good. And the owner yeah. passed the deadline and they wound up, somebody else wound up taking the job. And he's like, how disappointing was that? He's like, but there's no way I could hold those prices. Right, right. And and, and I think uh, I, I got to say fr- from that standpoint, I, I feel like the the vendors and, and suppliers in our industry did a, an admirable job for a really long time. Yeah. And, and they held out and I think they managed, <clears throat> they managed like they always manage in hedging and, and pre-buying and in, they really did a great job, but I think they kind of ran out of room mm-hmm. last fall through the winter where, where they couldn't do it any longer. And that's where we really saw some hits was last fall. And, and I believe it's just because they just ran out of room. And, and if ran you out of at, options, ran out of margin. Yeah, yeah, everything was gone, right? And and they thought they could, they could manage their way through it, but it just lasted too long, I believe. Yeah. And that's when we saw them coming back saying, yeah, I'm sorry, but we've got to, we've got to change the pricing structure. Uh, I know as many vendors pulled freight out of their quotes, which normally we would see a vendor and they would, they would quote it freight to a job site. Mm-hmm. So we see that pulled out and they say, well, it's going to be, here's what we think, but that's your risk at this point. Yeah. It's, it's 5,000 a truck. No, it's 7,500 or whatever. Yeah. Now it's 10,000. Yeah. I mean, it just, and, and so, yeah. So we, we've seen that happen and, and, uh, and everybody got real angry, but I got to say, I think they did a, a pretty good job at managing it for the first 18 months of the problem. And, and hopefully we'll get back to that, but it's a new world. And, and we've been explaining that to our clients for the last six months, it's a new world. And, 
uh, everything's unprecedented at this point. Man, that is that is really well said. I like the way you captured that. It's a new world. Everything is unprecedented. I, I said to somebody today, the only thing predictable about now is the unpredictableness of now. <laughs> uh, I, I liken it to this analogy when I hear you speak, and I was talking to my partner about this, like, you know, if you're, if you're, let's say you're the captain of a big boat and that boat takes the same route every trip with its cargo and the seas are usually pretty steady, you know, the route, you know, you can be in the captain's quarters and your first, you know, mate is on the bridge and you're playing backgammon, you're writing letters, you're checking the dials here and there. You can go up and down once in a while. No big deal. This is not one of those times. Everybody's on the bridge. Captain's at the wheel. All his team is at the wheel. All the buttons and dials are being monitored and pushed at the same time. The seas are rocky. It's just, it's not a time to just relax. Right. Right. So, yeah, that's, that's really good. Thanks for saying that. Um, All right. Good. Uh, One final question on supply before I ask you some, just a couple other things before we adjourn. Uh, I had a couple of clients talking to me and and I've looked at this too uh, about finishing one client recently said, he said, glass and aluminum are the least of my problems. He said, finish. Well, first of all, we're on allocation. Second of all, the price has gone completely out of control. Have you seen similar with finishes? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think anytime you're talking about uh, PVDF finish, uh, you're, you're exactly on target. You know, availability, uh, allocation, and in cost has gone bananas. I, I can't remember something like 75% cost increase over the last 12, 13 months. And, and then coupled with sometimes you're just waiting for resin for, or for your paint for 12 weeks, 14 weeks, something, something that used to be a, a two to three week. Yeah. Never. Used, it used to be the limit used to be how quickly can I get my, my extrusions now right. it's, well, I got the extrusion sitting there. I can't get them painted or finished or kind art or whatever it is, you know? Well, and, and we're running into nobody wants to push the extrusion until they have the paint. Mm-hmm. And, and so you, you sort of compound the schedule because nobody wants extrusions really sitting around waiting for paint. They, yeah. they want to they pump them out, finish them and ship them. One of my clients, the, they were happy to get from a particular extruder they were happy to get a 19 to 20 week lead time on custom extrusions i'm yeah. like used to never be that 12 to 16 weeks key mark sometimes could pump them out in eight to 10 weeks you know not anymore yeah, yeah. I, it, it's it's a it's definitely a different world i i know with with most of our extruders that we deal with they said nothing more in 2022 if you haven't reserved it and put it in our books already you're not getting anything in 2022 wow so well, thanks for that. Let's uh, we're going to have to wrap up here for the, your sake and the sake of the audience. Um, I know a little bit that you you're a pretty active guy outside of the office. You ski. What what are your what are your hobbies? What what things do you like to do to refresh yourself? Um, you know, books, exercise, hobbies, sports. Yeah. What kind of things do you like? I well, I, I have to admit to you, John. This is the first year, and and and. 20 plus years, I didn't ski. Mm. It was just kind of a crappy snow year. It was crowded, all kinds of special rules for reservations. So I just, I didn't ski all year and I really missed it. But mm-hmm. uh, the snow was so bad, I ended up mountain biking a lot. And <laughs> so, 
so we did did a, a bunch of mountain biking. Um, I, I I'm kind of a jack of all trades, master of nothing. I like tinkering around, um, rebuilding an old car right now that's taking way too much time and money. Uh, do a lot of hiking and, and biking. So yeah, I. I'm glad you reminded me of the mountain biking. I know you mountain bike. Well, that's good. If you can't ski, you can mountain bike. So, yeah. So, so, you know, you got a big fat snow bike and, and ride that around. And then we go to Southern Utah, which is only a four hour drive, which we do probably eight to 10 times in the wintertime and, and spend a weekend mountain biking. Is it cold, but sunny there? It's actually, it can, it can actually be quite warm. So it can be, okay. it can be in the sixties when it's uh, in the twenties up here. So. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, Derek, anything else you'd like to say or mention before we sign off? Well, um, you know, I, I just think we have a we have a great industry that we're in. We're we're really fortunate to have be exposed to so many things. Um, you know, I just hope that people in our industry can continue to to perpetuate a professionalism that I think sometimes lacks, and and uh, and we get treated that way by the contractors. So you know, step up, fight for a good seat at the table and, and let's, let's make our industry a, a strong and proud industry. That's a great word. That's a great thing to close with. Um, Derek, it has been a pleasure to see you, to hear your perspective, to carry on a conversation. I can't thank you enough. I know how busy you are um, just to take an hour, hour and a half of your time to meet. So thank you. Um, I appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, he is Derek Losey, Executive VP of Steel Encounters Architectural Division. I'm John Wheaton, host of the Creating Structure podcast. Thank you for listening. We are signing off now. Have a good night.